It all happened on a day, that joyful Christmas day planned in eternity by God the Father and declared by angels as this day which Christ the Savior would be born. On this day, at the perfect fullness of time in the prophesied city of Bethlehem, a promised Savior was born to a perishing world. Jesus' birth shook an unassuming, silent night into a spectacular night as history was split between Christmas promised and Christmas fulfilled. So it was that in the manger lay the infant Jesus Christ, God's great confirmation of all his promises revealed in the glory of Christmas. Christmas narrative is probably, as a collection um, of, of individual narratives, maybe the most familiar um, set of, of, of narratives, pericope, set of stories in, in all of the Bible. Uh, they're told, they're depicted, they're, they're artistically and painted and sculpted and sung about and preached about and all of those things. It's a well-known story. This morning, we're going, to, we're going to zoom in on one of the particular narratives that is itself a well-known story. Uh, it's, it's well known, but it also has, has attracted sort of a, 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 a bit of a cloud of legend around itself. And some of those, some of those legendary components, I, I, may, I may kind of pick at just a little bit this morning. Uh, but let me, let me go ahead and disclaim a little bit before I start. It is not, it is not my intent, my desire, neither should it be your follow-up to go home and mess with your nativity set. Uh, some, of the, some of the most pretty figures in your nativity set, probably among the tallest and among the most comfortable, or not comfortable, colorful, I don't know how comfortable they are, colorful are the, are the three wise men. Um, the three kings from Orient are, and um, they, they, they may not necessarily belong there at the manger. There may not necessarily be three of them and, and, and some other stuff that we'll get to. But I don't want you to go home and go nativity set busting. Use the nativity set in your house to tell your guests at home the story of Christmas, and that's a good thing. It's a well-known story. The, the coming of these magi. For the term wise men, translated I think three times that way in this paragraph, translates the word magi. And I'll tell you a little about who they were in just a moment. But let's start with the reading of Scripture. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And they quote from Micah chapter 5, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Again, it's a well-known story. Certainly not kings, these magi. In fact, they were, well, magi. One of the very few proper nouns in all of scripture that is a word that is of Persian origin. Magi, from which descends uh, our, our English words magic and magician, come from, come from this Persian word magi. It's a, it's a formal group. They are not just men who happen to be wise. They were members of a quite ancient order. The order of the Magi dates back several, several centuries, and that matters to our narrative because letter A, their ancestors, their forebearers in the order of the Magi had in fact heard from God. To understand these, these, these men and their, their motives and their roots, you have to go back to basically the seventh century BC. In the year 605 BC, the uh, Persians, the Babylonians, had in fact conquered the city of Jerusalem. And part of their conquest was the kidnapping of some of the best and brightest young people from Jerusalem to go serve in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And so to the court they came. Uh, among them, a young man by the name of Daniel. You get this narrative in the first few chapters of the book of Daniel. By the time Daniel arrives in Babylon, the Magi order is already well established. They are astrologers. They are astronomers. They are, in their day, physicists, mathematicians, literary scholars. They are not the kings, but they are often the king makers. They are the, the influential class, the courtiers. They're well-known, highly respected, quite powerful. And among the various things they were supposed to be able to do, they were supposed to be able to tell you what a dream meant. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had disturbing dreams and he called upon the Magi to interpret them and they couldn't do it. Meanwhile, Daniel had established himself as a young man of, of some wisdom. And so as events unfolded, and you can read these uh, narratives of the first few chapters of Daniel, Daniel uh, is able to interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now Nebuchadnezzar had become so frustrated with the Magi, he was prepared to have all of them killed. And it is the intervention of Daniel that, that held off the slaughter of all the Magi of his day. And actually, by, by near the end of Daniel chapter 2, 
chapter 2, verse 48, to be specific, we're told that Daniel has been placed as the head of the entire order. Daniel becomes the chief of the Magi. And so at the head of this order, some 600 years before, had been the prophet Daniel. Now we don't know much about where the faith legacy of the Magi went, though we get a bit of a peek. There's a, there's a, a far Middle Eastern religious thread, an organized faith known as Zoroastrianism. I do not recommend you spend a great deal of time studying it. Some years ago, I was, I was presented the opportunity by people who knew who I am and what I believe to nonetheless teach for a couple of semesters comparative religion at one of our community colleges. And so the Baptist pastor came in and taught comparative religions. And in the curriculum they, they sort of assigned me to teach, I had to teach a unit on Zoroastrianism. Not the most profitable study I've ever done. But it's an ancient religion. It is monotheistic. They hold that there is one God, though it's not the God of the Bible, not even close. But in that big lump of mud, there are some flecks of truth. Where are the, the influences of, of some of what may be true or some of what is true about the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, seem to have dripped into the belief framework of this ancient religion, I believe through the influence of Daniel. Which raises the question, as these magi hear the lingering echoes of a spiritual legacy that had them watching the sky over Israel, Do you have a spiritual legacy? For some of us here, it might be sort of what it is for me. You've heard me often say, my mom and dad are still alive and healthy, functioning really, really well. Um, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna cite my mom's age, that's not my business, although what she says of her age is that through life, and ladies, I don't know if you agree with this or not, my mom says at some point you stop lying about your age and start bragging about it. I think my mom is probably there. My dad is 91 and doing really, really well. And they both knew and loved Jesus a long time before they ever married, well, certainly a long time before they ever had me. I am blessed in that the first of my grandparents to pass away didn't pass away until I was in junior high school. So I have very vivid memories of the faith and faithfulness of all four of my grandparents, my dad's mom and dad and my mom's mom and dad. So I am able to speak uh, of, a, of a legacy of multi-generation faithfulness to Christ going back. I am told that a few generations back, a lot of the people on my mother's side of the family were Methodist. And I just say that proves you can recover from anything. Okay, okay, okay. I take swipes at other denominations. I don't know that I had ever taken a poke at the Methodists and I wanted to give them their turn. Do you have such a legacy? Some of you, some of you do. Some of you might not. But for those of you who do, let me talk to you for a moment. Does, does your life, does your faithfulness to Christ, are you 
If you had that, that, that praying grandmother who prayed for your soul, for some of you who are young who might still pray for your soul, are you a good custodian of that legacy? More pointedly, as we are gathered together here in December of 2022, what about your own legacy? <laughs> I'd, I don't want my children or grandchildren, my great-grandchildren may barely remember me. That's just the way it goes. I have some memories of one of my great-grandparents. My mother's mother's mother was very long-lived, and so my great-grandmother Porter, I remember her a little bit. I don't remember any of my other great-grandparents, and I don't have any illusions that my great-grandchildren will have much memory of me. But such legacy as I do leave. You know what I hope? I hope that when they tell the story of dad or granddad slash boomer or whatever my great-grandkids ever know me as, I hope they can't tell that story much without talking about Jesus. I hope that Jesus comes up in a more than incidental way when they tell the story of the legacy. And for you, whether you inherited a spiritual legacy, these magi had only the lingering echoes of a godly prophet from 600 years ago. But it, something in that legacy had them looking in the right direction. Will your descendants at least know to look in the right direction because of the life story that you leave behind? Have you inherited any spiritual legacy? Will you create such a one? Roman numeral two, that legacy they inherited prepared them to watch the right direction. Leads us to Roman two, the light they heeded. The light they heeded. There are a couple of sort of footnotes that come out of this story that, that, that a lot of people have spilled a lot of ink over. One, one of the footnotes that people spill a lot of ink over is, is Jesus at this time, is he, is he still in, he's, he's not a baby anymore, we'll get to that in a moment, but is he, is he living in Bethlehem? This story never says that. It says that Herod sent them to Bethlehem, said that, they would be, that he would be born in Bethlehem, but it never specifically says what city the Magi went to to find him. And some have inferred from some statements in Luke that Jesus may have been living in Nazareth at this time. At, it's a fun, fun thing for Christian bloggers to write blog posts about. It's not of a great deal of consequence or we would just have it as a point of fact in this narrative. The other thing that people want to seem to want to just really get worked up over is what was this star? Was it, was it an odd supernatural alignment of Jupiter and Saturn? Well, if it was, I only know of one being. In fact, there is only one being that can move Jupiter and Saturn around like chess pieces, put, him where he, put them where he needs them to be to send a, a, a cosmic message. Okay. Some have said it's a comet or a meteorite. Well, if so, it's sure high resolution because it brings them to a particular house. And that is some seriously weird behavior for a meteorite. I've been... a uh, blessed on occasion. I, um, I sometimes have walked dogs very, very early before dawn. 
And there's, a, there's about a block away from my house, there's a block that doesn't have any street lights. And it's not uncommon at all for me to see shooting stars in the pre-dawn. They're good for a fraction of a second, maybe. Comets hang around for a while, but for, for a comet to lead you to a particular house, that is some serious high-resolution cometry right there. Whatever this thing is, it behaves like a laser pointer when it needs to. Speculate all you want about natural phenomena. If it's a natural phenomenon, it's certainly being used and in behaving in an incredibly supernatural way. I think it far more likely that, that there's a shard, a particle, a spark, a tiny piece of a piece of the Shekinah glory of God assigned by him as he assigned a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire to lead his people in the wilderness. Here he assigned a spark of his own glory to lead these magi to where he wanted them to be. You know, we have stories in scripture of people from unbelieving cultures responding to the light they've been given. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a metaphorical sense. Three that I'm very, very fond of, very familiar with, occurred just in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter eight, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember? He's a court official. The Roman Empire is the dominant world power of the world in which the New Testament emerges. But if you got in Africa, much south, the, the, the Mediterranean Africa, North Africa was dominated by the Roman Empire. But if you went far south at all, you would encounter the Ethiopian Empire. It was the dominant power on the African continent. And a high official of that empire, the court treasurer to the empress of that empire, travels to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter eight, the Bible says that he said he had come there to worship. How did he even know to do that? There had been no gospel witness that we know of into his life, but for some reason, he responded to whatever light he had. And while he was in Jerusalem, he purchased a fantastically expensive souvenir. We know that because as he leaves in his, in his battle wagon with his entourage, he's reading from a scroll of Isaiah. If you were to travel to Israel today and were to ask a faithful Jew in Israel today, what is the most valuable object or artifact in this, in this ancient land? What is the most valuable artifact today? A faithful Jew will tell you it is the great Isaiah scroll. The shrine of the book, a dedicated sub-museum within the museum of the city of Jerusalem. It is a, it is a museum for the, for the display of the scroll. It is unrolled around the circumference of a room. That room is subterranean because that museum is both a vault and a bomb-proof bunker because of the value the modern Israelites place on this intact Isaiah's scroll from centuries before Christ. Well, the Ethiopian eunuch up and bought one, spending a huge fortune to have access to the word of God. And God sent him an evangelist who led him to faith in Christ, baptized him at the next standing water they came to right out there in the Judean desert. The Ethiopian eunuch responding to the light he had. A couple of chapters later in Acts chapter 10, we meet Cornelius, an officer in the occupying Roman army stationed in the Roman capital of Caesarea by the sea. He's, um, 
not got any reason to have any great love for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the people around him certainly wouldn't be fond of him. And yet we're told he was a generous man, that he met the needs of the poor around him, and we're told that he prayed. He prayed. He prayed to the God who is. At that point, he's not a believer. He's responding to the light he has. And by the way, the angel told him, your prayers have come up before the living God. Somebody somewhere is going to try to tell you that God does not hear the prayers of a lost person. When somebody tries to tell you that God does not hear the prayers of a lost person, you do this. You smile and you say, Cornelius, Acts 10, and drop the mic. Because God surely, by his own testimony delivered through an angel, heard the prayers of that lost person as that lost person responded to the light he had And God sent him an evangelist in the person of Simon Peter. A few chapters later in Acts 16, we come to the story of Lydia at Philippi. Philippi, very pagan city. Most of the population of Philippi retired Roman military officers. It was a Roman colony city. Not enough Jewish presence there to even have a synagogue. A group of women prayed outside the city gate at the edge of a river bank. Among them, Lydia, fantastically wealthy. If you're a merchant in purple, as she is said to be, purple dye in the, in the part of history before synthetic dyes, purple was extremely hard to come by, reserved for royalty or the very, very rich. And she had an inventory of it. Wealthy lady. Responding to the light she had, she gathers with friends to pray, and the living God sent her the apostle Paul as an evangelist. But in all the New Testament, there's not a more literal example of people responding to the light they were given than these magi who traveled out of what is today Iran, Iraq, and came to encounter Jesus. So the question becomes for me, for you, I wonder what light has brought you here today. Might be that you're a McGregor member, Kirk alluded in his announcements to those of you who've been members here 50 years. I bet we have some in the room right now. This church has been around since 1958. And some of you have been around nearly that long, and I'm glad. What a joy it is to gather with the body of Christ, to be surrounded by people who, who love Jesus and love one another. It's a good thing. But it might be this morning that you're here because, you know, it's Christmas time and going to church is kind of what you do. And if so, I'm glad you're here and I hope you feel very, very welcome. You are. You might be here because a family member said, come on, it's Christmas time, come to church with me. Or it might be that you've got some curiosity about some of what you've heard. Is it it fair for me to ask you to consider a bit more deeply? What light are you responding to? What light has brought you here this morning? And are you prepared to consider the very real possibility that all sort of human sub-reasons aside, you're here because possibly God is up to something and may be up to something that could involve you personally entering into relationship with him? When the, when the baby of Bethlehem grows up, he's going to say that he, the Son of Man, had come to seek and to save the lost. Perhaps you're here this morning because you 
are responding to the light you have been given. And now you will hear and know that your hope for eternity is in Jesus Christ. Roman numeral three, the leaders they alarmed. Herod was not a nice guy. Um, this particular Herod is known to history as Herod the Great. He built some amazing stuff. He was quite the architect, but he's also a lunatic. Extraordinary, extraordinarily paranoid, extraordinarily jealous. By this time in this King Herod story, he has already killed off members of his immediate family to further secure his grip on power. Later in his life, he's going to kill his wife and his own kid. In fact, on the day this King Herod died, he knew that late in life, he knew that nobody liked him. And so on the day that he died, he had arranged some of his thugs to murder many of the prominent citizens of Jerusalem so that on the day that he died, at least somebody would be mourning. Yeah, he's bent. So he's a vile, vile guy. You know, if you know how this story continues, that the reason he wants the location of the birth of what he views as this alternate usurper king, he wants to kill him and he's going to order the mass slaughter of the toddlers in a whole region in a hope to kill Jesus. He's, he's seriously messed up. These, he, when, when, when he's questioning where the Messiah was to be born. The king of the nation of Israel is not even familiar enough with Old Testament prophecy to know about the role Bethlehem would play. He has to call his religious advisors around him to fill him in on the prophet Micah. So he's not godly. He doesn't reason biblically. He's opposed to all things godly. These scribes and Pharisees may be the religious muckety-mucks, pardon me, scribes and priests, they may even have an encyclopedic knowledge of the verbal content of the Old Testament. But they don't know God. They're not interested in being godly. They're certainly not interested in the only way whereby fallen humanity can be reconciled to God, which is in the person of Jesus Christ, their Messiah. No interest in that at all. In your notes, I have said that the world's systems and those who most influence them the high and mighty of this world, the important of this world, the influential of this world, the people that are the movers and shakers of this world, whether those systems are viewed as political, economic, or especially religious, will always oppose the gospel. Religion, broadly defined, is the stuff I do to make God like me. And the world's false religion, there's only one core false religion. It shows up with lots of labels at different times. The world's false religion is this. Behave yourself and you'll be okay eternally. That is the false religion. It shows up with lots of different labels in lots of different times and places, but it's always based on you behave yourself and you'll rack up enough points that when it comes time for the eternity evaluation, you'll be okay. That's not true. You don't even have to say false religion because given that definition, all religion is inherently false. And it opposes the gospel, tooth and nail. Because the gospel says you can't be good. Not only are you not good, you can't be good. If Santa's keeping two lists, pal, you're on the wrong one. And you always have been. You can't be good. It's 
beyond us since the fall. Since great-great-grandparents many times, Adam and Eve blew it in the garden and took us down with them. We inherit from them a sin nature that bends us towards sin, and as soon as we get around to it, we waste no time getting around to it and fully live out that sin nature such that we become the just objects of God's condemnation, but for the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And only that, only that, the acceptance of Christ by repenting of our sin, following him as Lord, trusting him as Savior, do we come to be the inheritors of eternal life. Supreme power, amen. Supreme power resides in him. Righteousness resides only in him. You cannot earn, cannot deserve the eternal life that is given as a free gift. That message offends the world. It always has, it always will. Pop culture God, even in times when there has been pop culture God. Pop culture God is no friend of the gospel. Pop culture God is an advocate of works righteousness of which there is no such thing. So, are you prepared? These three magi realized that Herod was out of sync with what God was up to. And so they didn't play along with Herod's shenanigans. Are you prepared to have times, seasons, of your life where you don't play along with the world's shenanigans? Are you prepared to stand opposite the culture of our day? Finally, Roman 4, the Lord they worshiped. This, this, this shard of the Shekinah glory of God leads them to a particular house. Now that leads us in verse 11 as they come to the house. There are two words in verse 11 that tell us that some time has passed. First, they, they went into the house. They're not at the manger. So again, your, your nativity said, if you want to make it to scale, you could take the three wise men and locate them several miles east of your house. They're there, but they're a long way to the east. And then, and then you'd, you know, but I wouldn't do that. Um, it's a house, not a manger. And a few words later, Jesus is a child, not a baby. It's a, different, it's a different word. The word is one that would be used more likely of a toddler, not used of an infant. So some time has passed here, probably something between one and two years since the birth of Jesus. But what of these gifts? Letter A on your outline. The Magi were implanted in the upper echelons of Persian society. They would have been men of enormous influence quite probably very noteworthy wealth. They didn't just bring what they had lying around because they probably had most anything they would have wanted to bring lying around. No, these gifts are very, very intentional. Gold. Gold has been associated throughout all of human culture and history with, with wealth and power, royalty, I um, have had the, um, for me, the, the pleasurable, I enjoy doing it, experience uh, a, 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 a few times of taking people who have never seen them to, uh, to the Tower of London to, uh, to look at the 
British crown jewels and coronation regalia. When you go through that display, there is a honking lot of gold. Wow, is there a lot of gold in that series of vault rooms. It's like they, they just make stuff out of it. Like soup terrines and stuff. Gold. But they're royal. Royals do gold. I get it. This gold is symbolic of the Magi knowing that the one, and by, and by the way, there probably also, there were three gifts, and there were, gold, frankincense, myrrh. There's no reason to conclude that there were certainly three Magi. Odds are there were a number more than three because this sort of expedition, odds are they had a large escort with them, possibly even a military-looking escort, which would further explain why the whole city of Jerusalem was alarmed when they arrived. It might have smelled like an advance army of some sort of invasion or something. Well, so if you want to go buy some more magi and kind of populate the thing at home on your uh, credenza, go for it. Pastor Russell said, and arm some of them up. <laughs> Gold is a symbol of royalty, always has been. Frankincense, an extraordinary, extraordinarily rare spice associated with the Old Testament temple worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was the incense that was burnt on the altar of incense was what here is called frankincense rare and hard to come by and associated with the worship of the living God who is. I wonder who might have taught the Magi order that frankincense was the incense of worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Oh yeah, Daniel. Daniel. Those guys knew that frankincense was associated with deity. Gold for his royalty. Frankincense for his deity, the godness of Jesus. Myrrh. Myrrh really kind of doesn't fit. Myrrh, myrrh was pretty common and not terribly expensive. In fact, it's, it's used as part of the, the spice goop that was used to embalm bodies. It wasn't that hard to come by and it wasn't that expensive. It's like you went, you went Christmas shopping for somebody and went to, to uh, Neiman Marcus and Tiffany and Walmart. The myrrh is the Walmart gift. And with all respect to Walmart and no particular respect to Neiman Marcus and Tiffany. Myrrh doesn't fit. Myrrh is emblematic of his humanity. Its association with death, its commonness. You know, the humanity of Jesus is the piece that doesn't fit. His deity, his awesome creative power. We sang earlier in this service, or earlier this morning, of the, the great I am. And yet, a human. In this account, a little toddler. Myrrh for his humanity. So the wise men arrived knowing, look for one to be born among the Jews who would be royal, 
God and human. And when they encountered him, they worshiped him. I believe they came to saving faith. Speculation, but I think it lines up pretty well with what the text tells us. So the question becomes, let her be on your outline, are you prepared to give your life's best? These men undertook a long and difficult journey, sacrificed for amazing gifts, and worshiped when they met Jesus. One day you're going to meet Jesus. The Bible says one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Will that be a moment that you anticipate with eagerness, gratitude, joy? Or is that a moment that you shall rebel against and dread? The outcome of which will be more dreadful than anything you could anticipate. You will meet Jesus. You will kneel before your king. I pray that that moment would be joyful. You ready for Christmas? I hope you are. Gail and I went into Costco yesterday. Carnage. The only way to do it is the way we did it. We're pretty well through our Christmas shopping and we have no small children in tow. So we went in sort of as flyover observers to just sort of, hey, let's go into Costco. You're kidding, right? No, come on, let's go check it out. Carnage. Costco wasn't half bad for us because we're ready for Christmas. We're kind of done. Are you? And I'm not talking about Christmas 2022. I'm talking about either when you go to the king in death or when he comes for you at his return. You're ready to meet him? I hope you are. If not, <laughs> there's no time like the present. In fact, strictly speaking, there's no time but the present. Tomorrow, I mean, pardon me, yesterday is beyond your editorial power. You can't fix it. Tomorrow is sheer presumption. Maybe you'll be around tomorrow, maybe you won't. That's why the Bible says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. 